Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Christopher Brun Haran. Hello. Hello. (laughs) This is like a reunion. Mm. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of A Little Wiser. This is your host, Kimmy Culp. And today I have a celebrity guest, I'm going to call him Christopher. And if you have not listened to episode two, Christopher was not only one of my first interviews as we talked about his beautiful love story with his partner, Jesse, and their journey to adopt two foster children, sons, and the son they lost. And the adoption has gone through, I should say, and you now have two sons. Yeah, we do. He's a beautiful storyteller, and he also came to my house the night of the launch party and spoke live to give the guests that night a glimpse of the type of conversations we were going to have. And there was like, everyone was speechless. I mean, you were, you you crushed it. So very kind. So full circle, my friend, here we are. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. I really consider it a privilege to be here. So thank you. So today we're going to talk about addiction and more specifically sort of this notion around addiction. Is it a moral failing? I have a very specific answer to that question, which we Mm. will get to. But we're doing this because of the All the Wiser episode with Aaron Carr. And for those of you who haven't listened, it's the episode before this. And Aaron started stealing pills from her grandmother's cabinet at the age of eight. She started using heroin at the age of 13 and was a full, you know, blown addict spending hundreds of dollars a day on heroin by the time she was in her early, late teens, early 20s. Mm. And all while living this completely sort of yuppified prep school existence. She was an equestrian and a volleyball player and a scholar and hiding her darkness, her pain that led, her mental health struggles that that secretly led. You know, she talks about seeing as an eight-year-old the little, this may make you sleepy and drowsy, and she wanted her mind to quiet and numb. And <laughs> so just that image that that began. So not only was she able to hide the addiction, but the root of the addiction, which was, you know, her mental health struggle. I should also say, she's 18 years in recovery, She's a columnist. She writes about, you know, everything from recovery to sex to relationships. Beautiful writer, author, public speaker, mom of two, just rad. So she was talking about this notion of shame and that addiction is Mm -hmm. not a moral failing. Addiction is a public health issue. And I think that's such an important distinction. And one of the examples she gave is she lives in New York City and says, you walk by the guy who's, you know, strung out and, you know, sitting there on the sidewalk. And there's a lot of judgment around that, right? Like, ugh, what a disaster, you know, strung mm-hmm. out on drugs on the street. 
And it's very likely that that 10-year-old boy did not have a dream of being a drug addict on the street, that he is suffering from an underlying illness, very likely rooted in, in mental illness. And so I want to explore that. And Christopher, the reason that I am calling you is because I know you are in recovery. And I don't actually know anything about it. If it was alcohol, drugs, and I just know that you had mentioned that in our conversation. So can you give a little bit of context to your journey and road to recovery? It started as alcohol for me. It started as sugar, and then it progressed to all kinds of drugs ending in uh, crystal meth, most notably. But I'll be sober 10 years in July, and I have relapsed. And we'll, I'll talk about that at some point. You know, I first got sober when I was 23 years old, and um, I'm now 53 years old, and I don't have 30 years. So there was some relapses along the way and a lot of shame that went with those relapses. And, and so I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit. But I've been sober uh, 10 years in July, this coming July. Well, congratulations and thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about shame while it's fresh. And I think what Aaron says is that, well, we know this right as human beings. Shame doesn't work, right? Right. Your parents screaming, I'm ashamed at you, I'm ashamed at you, are you shaming yourself, normally does not lead to meaningful change. So there has to be some level of compassion. So not, I'm ashamed of you. You know, it's, you've stumbled, you fell, I believe in you. You know, what can we learn from this? What can we do to move forward is a way more effective tool. So it yeah. makes a lot of sense that in recovery that application would be the same. And Erin said that she, I asked her how many times she relapsed and she said more than she could ever count. I mean, it was, she just said I dozens and dozens. And you said the same thing, that you, you called yourself a relapser when mm -hmm. we were talking and that there's even shame within the recovery community around that. And talk to me about that, this notion of sort of no tolerance to what is essentially stumbling and then getting back up. Sure. You know, the first thing is it's, it's the person himself, like myself. Like when I relapsed, you're just ashamed. You're ashamed to tell people. You're embarrassed. Even when you do tell people, you know, it's not everyone. Some people really get it. They get that it's a disease. They get that sometimes relapse is a part of that disease. Sometimes someone will get sober and they will stay sober and they will never relapse. I know people that are sober for you know double-digit sobriety, 25, 30 years that have never relapsed and kudos to them. And then there's other people who have tried seven times, eight times, nine times. And you know the problem with this alcoholism and addiction rather than other diseases is that, you know, if you have cancer and you suddenly go from being in remission to showing symptoms again, people really feel bad for you. And the thing about alcoholism and addiction is that our symptoms are things like stealing from you, sleeping with your husband, belligerence, anger, crashing cars, all kinds of things, not showing up at work, these really unattractive human characteristics that make people kind of not want to be around you. And you had asked me about how people in recovery feel about it. Sometimes people really get it and they're supportive and they understand. But then there's a, sometimes a subtler thing where people will say things like, you know, 
did you call anybody or were you going to meetings or did you call your sponsor? Were you sponsored at the time? Were you working with people? So there's this sort of underlying, what weren't you doing? What could you have done more? And sometimes those are accurate appraisals, but sometimes it's just that somebody may have stage four alcoholism and they have it harder than other people and they'll end up relapsing numerous times before they quote unquote get it. Thank you for that. And I think you illustrated it with such detail. So thank you for that. And the statistics are a little bit off the charts. I mean, it's 85% of people relapse within the first year of treatment, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And with alcohol, it goes up to 90% within four Mm. years from the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. So I do think all of these are really interesting because they have a negative impact on recovery. And the shame and secrecy piece and the parallel to cancer, to diabetes, whatever medical condition, because this is in fact a medical condition you want to call it, you don't speak in hushed tones. People Mm -hmm. aren't at the dinner party saying, oh my gosh, she's such a mess. She has cancer. You know, did you hear, you know, There aren't people gossiping about people suffering from Mm -hmm. stage four breast cancer. But it is this association that somehow it's a judgment of character. And that distinction between a moral choice, a flawed person, a bad human being versus somebody who is ill and so often rooted in this act of numbing, right? Mm -hmm. A pain that is so deep that there is something that is accessible to have you not feel that pain? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that to me seems like, and certainly an Aaron story, and I know it's case by case, but the root of it often, and that it's a hereditary illness. Yeah. People have been passed down generation amongst generation, but still we, as a society, I think collectively, whether you say it or not, perceive it as a moral failing. Yeah, I think so too. And a lot of it, again, I I really think it's because of the characteristics, like the symptoms of alcoholism and addiction are things that people don't like seeing in people. And it's it, they're unattractive qualities. And what ends up happening, sometimes if you see someone get sober, like even when you, I don't know Erin, but you were, you described her, you talked about her, but then you talked about who she is today. You know, a mother of two. And I, like my life today looks nothing like it did when I was using and drinking, nothing. So what ends up happening is like, if someone can get sober, they can become an entirely different person. The person that they were meant to be, you could argue, or who they always wanted to be. But when they're in the disease and when they're actively using or drinking, they're exhibiting you know, behavior that is abominable, that nobody wants to see, nobody wants to be around. People, loved ones, sometimes just get so sick of them, they don't want to see it anymore. And also what happens is sometimes even the people who want to be loving and supportive, you know, they're told, don't be doormats, don't let these people walk over you. And it's a really important thing for the addict and the alcoholic. It was definitely important for me to have people tell me, I can't deal with this about yeah. you anymore. Yeah. So those are important things to have happen. But at the same time, it's also so important that if somebody says they're trying again, even if it's the 30th time, to just say to them, you know, I love you. I'm here for you. I want to support you to the degree that you're comfortable doing. I'm curious, how long have you been with Jesse? 
coming up on eight years. Okay. And he wouldn't mind me saying this. We met in AA. Oh, you did. Okay. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, we have a sober household. He walked by and smiled, sort of gave me the nod that that was all right for me to say. We met in the rooms and it was the last thing I was looking for. And um, I was coming back from a relapse. I was about one year back. So probably about nine years I've known him. Yeah. Why do you think, I mean, the name, right, is alcohol... It's anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think the anonymous piece is there and why people need it? And also whether it's kind of of service from the public health standpoint or not when it comes to shame and stigma. I think the anonymous part is so people can feel safe going in and opening up and talking. Yeah. The thing about this is, and the shame and the stigma is, you know, people are holed up in rooms. Sometimes people are like lively drinkers. They're out in public. They're, you know, falling down in bars. But a lot of times people are alone in rooms and nobody knows it but them and the people closest to them. And that's real shame. And part of getting sober and staying sober, like if you look at the big book, like there's this thing called the doctor's opinion, and they talk about how the first alcoholic that it stuck with, the people that you know started the book and started the program, they realized that they had to go out and they had to talk about their illness with other alcoholics. They had to talk about it. And that was what was keeping them sober is the talking about it with other alcoholics. It's one alcoholic reaching out to another alcoholic and telling them their story. And so that became crucial in people getting sober. And before AA, people were going to asylums and jails and institutions. You know, once AA became out there after this, you know, Saturday Evening Post article that was written, it became very popular and people saw this as an alternative. I mean, it really saved millions and millions of lives over time. But it was about fundamentally one person talking to another person, honestly, about what they were doing, what their alcoholism looked like. And then that person who was in it themselves, they would recognize that and they would go, oh, this person knows what they talk about. I'm trusting this person. And then they could take help from that person. And then that became groups and then became AA. And that's the opposite of shame because you have to be willing to open up and talk about what's really going on with you. So I think that's why you need to have it be anonymous because a lot of times people, you know, you need to feel safe. You need to know, yeah, okay, no one's going to call my boss or say, oh, I saw my neighbor at those meetings. Yeah. When you did relapse, when mm -hmm. you stumbled, what are the things that you attribute to how you, you got back up and moved forward and now have a decade of sobriety? What in your external world helped so people who may know somebody through a what has to be a long, exhaustive process for the loved ones of somebody suffering with addiction, what are the things they can do? From the time I came to AA the first time, I think I had seven real relapses where I had like substantial amounts of time, meaning over a year, and I went out and relapsed. And, and each time my disease progressed, meaning I would start exactly where I left off. It didn't build up to where I was. The night I went out, I sort of did exactly what I did the last time I used seven years prior. And I did things in relapses like crash cars. I brought down a street lamp. I don't say any of that stuff proudly, but this last time that I went out, nothing dramatic happened. I pretty much just used alone in my 
home. But I felt so bad when I came back. And I, I just realized that for me, I had to be 100% honest with someone. I had to shine the light on it. It just is the truth, that thing of you know, what happens in the dark eventually has to come out into the light. And I realized that. I realized that I needed help. I really needed to work with people and be honest with people because doing it halfway wasn't working for me. And not being 100% transparent wasn't working. And I didn't want to relapse anymore. And that's a lot of times what happens to people and why it's important to let people try again and again and again, because sometimes people do, as they say, it's a cliche, but they get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when I came back, I just was just, I didn't like myself and I didn't like the way I behaved when I was out. And so I was finally willing to do the 12 steps to a degree that I had never done them before. I've got a great sponsor and I was willing to do what he said. And it wasn't that he wasn't saying it before. It's just that now I was ready to actually do it. And what do you think is, if you had the platform, right? Your blank screen to have a PSA about addiction and where we stand as a country and what needs to happen to break down stigma and have more people recover and live healthy lives. Where do you think we are and what do we need to know? I think I told you this before, the shame issue. Before COVID, I was volunteering down at the Men's Central Jail and I teach storytelling and writing to inmates at the jail downtown. And so many people are in there for drug-related infractions. And when you talk to them in their writing, it will come out what's happened and why they're there. And if you listen, it's almost like this Where's Waldo? Like there are certain things that show up all the time. And so often alcohol shows up, drugs show up, addiction shows up, people not getting the help that's out there. And I think what the country needs to know is shaming people, it doesn't do anything except shame people and make people feel horrible. The thing about AA, I've been around AA long enough that I've watched it go through different opinions. You know, there are times that people see AA on TV and they're like, oh, this is really cool. This is really great. And then there's other times where people are like, ugh, I don't want to even hear about AA. Like, you know, people get this idea about what they think it is. But the reality is it's free and it really helps people. And so I think that to make people aware that, yes, you can go to rehab and you can send all kinds of money to go to rehab. And, and some people get sober that way. And I think that that's fantastic. However you get it is however you get it. But there's also free available help out there. And if people are just aware of that help, a lot of people aren't aware of it. I think I told you like, yes, I had a son that passed away and I, we had a relationship with his mother. And I remember thinking to myself, does she even know about AA? I didn't even know if she'd ever come in contact with it. You know, So I think it's just making people aware of the help that's there, that's free, that you know, in Los Angeles, there's 2,000 meetings a day. I mean, at least there used to be. I don't know what it is right now with COVID. It's very easy to walk into an AA room. If you're afraid of recognizing people, you can go to any part of town. You know, you can go to the website, you can get a meeting directory. I think it's just a matter of people understanding what we're talking about in this whole talk here, which is that it isn't about morality. It's a disease. And the things that you do that come across as grotesque are symptoms of your disease. And 
when you see people who have gotten sober, you'll realize that they're not still acting that way. And most of them, a lot of them have lives that, that you would like to have for yourself. You admire them. So I think it's just awareness. It's, it's really just trying to remove the stigma as much as you can. It's hard when uh, you have a family member who has hurt you over and over and over with it. But again, to be and supportive and as gentle as you can, but at the same time, you know, not be a doormat, of course, and just making people aware of what's out there. Well, as always, so thoughtfully and beautifully put. So thank you, Christopher, for joining me a second time. And I hope there is other conversations that we can share in the future. My pleasure. It was a real treat and a privilege. And uh, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Christopher. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.